Open up to Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, if you have a Bible with you, that's great. If you would like a Bible, uh, raise your hand and someone from the back can, uh, can get you a Bible so you can follow along. Some things that we'll be talking about will be on the screen, some won't. Uh, we're really picking up this morning in, uh, in part two of a message that we started last week, and uh, we decided to split it in half. So um, let me just kind of catch you up. We're, we're in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're really looking at this, uh, this passage of Scripture this morning. We'll, we'll kind of uh, start with, with verse 12 this morning. But just so you know kind of uh, the on-ramp of where we started with things last week, we talked about the idea that as we grow up in Christ, we grow closer to one another. And so this triangle represents the idea that by, uh, by nature, by the fall, really, we, we start off uh, at odds with, with people. And, and anyone who's been in relationship with anyone for any length of time understands this. But as we grew up in Christ, we grew closer to one another. Uh, the second thing that we kind of discussed, uh, got partly into was how does God grow the body? And we were looking at the physical body. We took ourselves back to middle school uh, last week a little bit to kind of think about some of the changes that go on then and how God grows a physical body. There's actually a lot of things that are similar to how he grows the church body. Now remember, uh, Paul, as he's writing through Ephesians, he's saying the the church is several different things. It's a mystery. It's a family. It's a body. It's a temple. He's talking about these different kind of metaphors. And we're right smack dab in the middle of this idea of it being a body. Now, uh, for some of you, this may be uh, your very first Sunday with us. I'd say welcome to you. Um, and I'll also say this. We are not the perfect church. We're not your dream church. Okay? Um, really, every birth. Laura's going to give birth here uh, to a child soon, Lord willing. And she's really excited. Um, no, matter, no matter how someone enters your family, whether it's biological or by adoption or some other way, you ought to really sit the person down and just say, I mean, really on their birthday, we're not the perfect family. I mean, this is going to be rough. I mean, we love you and we're thrilled that you're here, but let's just set the expectation right up front. Um, we aren't your dream family. And this is true of our church. We're not the dream church right here. Um, here's what's interesting is that what sells really well, this is a sexy way to ask it, and that is this. Are you looking for your dream, your dream mate, your dream spouse? Are you looking for your dream job? I mean, there's something in that that kind of hooks us. We're like, yeah. You know, we're driving to work or something, and we hear that. We go, yeah, I really am looking for my dream job because I know this nightmare that I'm living, you know, nine to five is, is not it. And there's something about that that kind of grabs us and hooks us. And I know that because we hear it all the time, and someone must be making money off that. Here's, what I, here's what's less flashy, okay? This is, this is what doesn't sell as well, is um, are you looking for a really mature mate, a really mature church, a really mature something? And the fact that it's mature Especially in a culture that kind of you know, idolizes and emphasizes um, youth, there's something about that that says, ew, like I don't want that. You know, I, I don't want to do that. Um, there's, a, there's a buddy of mine, and a mutual friend is, is here with us this morning. He's starting a church in Colorado, and today is, is their first public service. I've been kind of on this, this email. I said, buddy, help me out. I said, I want to I hear what God's doing right there near Colorado Springs, and I want to hear how things are going. And he's been having all kinds of meetings and this, that, and the other thing. This is a guy that I went to, to a youth group with. They're having their first public service today. And that's just so exciting. About four, four, a little over four years ago, we had our first one here. And uh, wouldn't it be a fascinating message for Steve to get up and preach a message that we're not the dream church? <laughs> on the very first Sunday. I mean, there's all this excitement. And sometimes people come because they go, man, maybe these people will kind of get it right. 
And then they get in, they realize, man, this is a family like anyone else, and they're getting it wrong. And haven't you known people, maybe you've been on this journey, where you've gone from church to church, place to place, job to job, mate to mate, looking for the dream, whatever. So let me give you a a short metaphor about um, maturity, okay? If maturity is not lacking, maturity is complete, it's full measure, Think about, think about the idea of maturity and what the opposite of that would be. I, I got this, uh, had this illustrated for me two days ago. I'm driving in the snow. I'm heading snowboarding, and we're in a long line of cars that are, that are going really, really slow. I'm kind of bored. We've been driving for a little while now, and we're at a, we're at a, we're at a point in Highway 50 where this, this big, probably quarter-ton truck uh, kind of drifts off my tail for a while. And the next thing I notice in my, in my rearview mirror playing out right here this truck is going like this. It's getting sideways. It's about two turns in. I'm like, wow, this guy's getting squirrely. I don't know how we did it because we're doing like 15 miles an hour. And then I realized, oh, he's messing around. Like he, he didn't do it, you know, just accidentally. So he's going, and about the fourth one, he goes, bam, right into the snow drift. And I'm all, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. Um, but here's the thing, like, I've done that. Anyone with a four-wheel drive car that, you know, especially these SUVs that they're like, ooh, I got gravel on my tires. You know, they finally get out there and they're like, let me test this thing out. And, and it was a little tiny metaphor for the immature life, okay? We're cruising along and everyone in line is, is either, you know, I was, gl- here's the only reason I was glad to be honest, I didn't want him behind me. Like, I don't, you don't want a guy like that behind you when you're driving your in-laws Lexus. Like, that's a bad thing. You know, that's not what you want at all. So he's driving, and as a, as a person bored in line going 50 miles an hour, frankly, I was being mature. I've done that, right? And I thought to myself, that looks mildly fun. I mean, it really does. It looks more fun than sitting here. But for a couple of short, you know, turns and going, whoa, his buddy's probably going, yeah, we rock! You know, whatever. For a, for a short-lived little time, I mean, they're living it up, and everyone in line's going, wow, that looks kind of fun. And then you blink your eye, and bam, their day's over. I, mean, I don't think they went snowboarding that day. They didn't get the greater reward. Uh, probably a few hundred or thousand dollars later, they, they looked like they were going to be just fine, and things were all going to work out. But that's a little metaphor of the immature life, isn't it? There's a season of time where we go, oh, that looks so much better than sitting here doing 15 miles an hour. But the language that those guys probably are going to tell the CHP a few minutes after that is the language we hear in life sometimes. I don't know what happened. I mean, the car just got away from me. I just, I was cruising along fine, and the next second, I mean, isn't that what you hear sometimes? I mean, you bump into someone, and, and you say, hey, how's your spouse doing? They go, oh, we, we split up. And you go, I'm sorry to hear that. What happened? And a lot of times the language would be like this. I don't, you know what? We fell out of love. I don't know. We slipped, basically. I mean, I was cruising along, and life was going good, and we blinked our eyes, and, and, and next thing you know, we're basically in a snowdrift, hit up against a snowdrift, going, what happened? They were totally in control and then lost it. So maturity, um, just know that you might have a predisposition almost against some of this because of a culture that kind of highlights the first part of that car drive where they're, where they're just living it up. And things look really, really good. And that you might be a tiny bit prejudiced against maturity. The dream church, collectively, is made up of people who are the dream people, who are, who are growing, who are maturing. 
And if you change your definition of what a dream church looks like, rather than the one that has arrived and is perfect and will never let you down, to one that is ever growing into an image of Christ, um, there is hope. So the question is, how do we get there collectively? And the greater question, if we're collectively making up the church, how do I get there? How do I grow? How do I grow up? So that's really what we're kind of looking at. Look at Ephesians 4.12. And this is, again, kind of picking up in the middle of the story, but we'll read it. Uh, Let me pick up from 11. And he gave, talking about Jesus, gifts to the body. These are growth gifts, kind of like hormones in middle school to cause you to grow. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And here's verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let's just take that one sentence for a moment. And I want to show you kind of this progression of growth. Here's what's beautiful about what we're talking about this morning. And you're going to, I hope you sense a tension. If I've done my job well, you'll sense this tension of the fact that you have a role in this, but you can't possibly make yourself holy. You can't possibly get better at speaking the truth and love to one another, which is where we're headed. You know how I know? Because I've tried, and you've tried, and you cannot do this. It really is a work of the Spirit in you. But as we'll see in this text... There's this tension in Scripture that if you're ever in a, around a person and they say, I'm just letting God do His thing. I'm just going to let go and let God. It's all God. And you're like, well, do you own a Bible? Of course I own a Bible. But it's all God. He's just going to teach me what I know. You ever read it? No, it's all God. He's going to remind me of things. Well, well God's given you the, the, the tool of Scripture, though, to be able to, to, to use that. And then there's other people who are all about their own personal effort. And maybe you've been there. It's exhausting. It really is. Not only that, it's pretty fruitless, isn't it? To just keep trying harder and harder and harder. And internally, long before it happens externally, you know this is failing. You know this is a sinking ship. And you're going, this is, I can't keep this up. I mean, if you started this when you're 20, you know, someone like me who turns 40 this year, that looks like, you're like, I can't even keep this up for five more years, much less an eternity like that 40-year-old over there. So if you've been on either side of this, you, you kind of see that, you know, and as you read the scriptures, you actually see this tension. That it really is a work of the Spirit. Sanctification, you growing up in Christ, is a work of the Spirit. But we're involved with it. Christ, who began the good work in each one of us, will complete and perfect us. Isn't that great news? I mean, you ought to just take a big sigh this morning and and hear that. Because that really is gospel. That's good news. That's great proclamation. Christ began the work. He's going to see it through to perfection. I mean, we're headed to perfection. The next time you're in an argument with your spouse or your kid or your boss lets you down or your co-worker's mouthing off, look at them. If they're a Christian, if they're found in Christ, you say, wow, this guy's going to be perfect one day. A long time from now, but it's going to happen. I mean, Christ is the author. He's not going to fail on this one. If you've got a, if you've got a, a relationship that's at odds, that's a comforting thought. Some of you are the prodigal right now in this room. You're the prodigal. God's going to rope you back in. He's going to return you to what you know is true. You're in a truck going, woohoo! And something's going to happen and God's going to open your eyes. Sometimes that's rough stuff that goes on. Here's the progression of growth. The equipping, the service and ministry, and then the building up of the church. The role of leadership in the church is to equip the body so that, purpose clause, for works of service, or ministry is what your, your uh, translation may say, so that the church can be built up. We'll take these one at a time very, very quickly. It's all written down. You don't really need to take many notes. 
Uh, this word equip is the same idea of setting a bone. Now, I don't work in, uh, in the medical field, but several in this room know how to set a bone uh, in case I break one, which could happen. Um, and, and this idea of equipping is saying that we're going to get this bone set. We're going to equip this person so that they can heal and grow and start walking normally again. Because if that doesn't happen, all the, all the, all the physical therapy later on is for naught, Right? You need to get the bone set. The equipping that's going to go on uh, is done by evangelists. Sometimes it's a pastor. Sometimes it's a book that you read. Sometimes it's a personal friend. They wouldn't call themselves an evangelist. They say, I'm not Billy Graham. I don't know that I have the spiritual gift of evangelism. But someone evangelized you if you're a Christian today. They simply told you the good news of Jesus Christ. And that transformed your life. And that person, what they were doing, whether you realize it at the time or not, is they were setting a bone that's been, that's been broken in your life. And some of you could just have amazing testimonies of how, man, once that bone was set, and it was a long time, but God really began to strengthen and be able to let me walk and grow normally from that point on. Evangelists, I would say, in some ways, are the ones that are the, the equippers in, things, in terms of setting things right. And pastors and teachers come along, and for years, they're like physical uh, therapists and coaches that kind of say, okay, now let's, let's teach you how to walk the right way now. You've been walking with this crazy limp because you've been dragging that broken leg around. And so that's what, that's what this idea of equipping is, is that you're growing. There's an initial setting, and then there is physical therapy and growing that goes on. The reason that, uh, that, that I, I love this term, I, I thought about this, about people that have been in church for 20 years. I talk to someone and they say, you know, I've tried Jesus. I've tried the whole Jesus thing. And I go, well, clarify that. I'm not sure what the Jesus thing is. So tell me, what does that mean? I prayed a prayer. I joined a church. I attended faithfully at a Bible study. I gave my money. I even volunteered and did some service work outside the church. Don't you know of people, maybe yourself, you, you can do that for a long period of time, and there's no real change to that, right? The gospel, the good news, is not praying a prayer and joining an organization and volunteering your time. You can do all of that apart from the miracle of the gospel, apart from the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's why you can see someone that goes, man, they've been a Christian, and I use that term loosely, for a long time there's been no change. There's been no growth whatsoever. If you looked at them spiritually, they're still dragging around kind of that limp leg. And in the name of Christ, all kinds of awful things have been done throughout history. And there hasn't been that sense of growth and change and equipping that we see. The spiritual tools of the trade of someone who's equipping are the Word of God. That's why every Sunday that you attend at Neighborhood Bible Church, I will have my Bible open and I will invite you to open your Bible. Because we'll preach through the Bible. It seems appropriate since it's in our uh, church name, Neighborhood Bible Church. But more than that, this is a tool of the trade. This is where the power lies. It's not in my insightful thoughts or funny stories about a truck going into snowbank. Well, funny for us. Um, it's the word. It's, the, it's, 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 it's the, the living and breathing word. The other one is prayer. Another one is testing. And another one is suffering. I'm sure we could add to this list, but think about these. These are the tools of the trade of church leadership. Ready? The word, prayer, testing, and suffering. Now, it's not my role as a pastor to cause you to suffer, although that may happen on occasion. But my role as a pastor is to come in and when you're lying flat on your back and you've heard all that the doctors can tell you and all that medicine and man can offer you to help you get better and to see what's happening to you, that I get to walk in as a shepherd 
And I get to point out and pray with you and walk in and enter in with you and say, what is God doing in all of this? What is this suffering really about? I received a text prayer request this week um, about a lost wallet from a family. So we, our whole family stopped what we were doing. We stopped and we just prayed for this. Now, I've lost things before. And I, my, my prayer is, I want to find it. God, I don't want my wallet lost. But the way that I prayed for this family was this. I said, God, whatever you're doing in this situation, I don't know what it is. But God's sovereign. Whatever you're showing this family right now in this moment, I pray they'd embrace that. I pray you'd give them spiritual eyes to see that. It's a different way of looking at suffering and testing and trials that, that go on. The progression goes from equipping to doing ministry, to service. Service is simply engaged in actively employing your gifts. Some of you are naturally gifted in a variety of ways. Everyone, as a Christian, is gifted spiritually. And that's a really empowering thought. I really began to grab that and take hold of that as I entered into college. And as a high school student, as a, as a young person, I've been uh, taught the word of God. I've been told different things. But life and ministry began to open up for me in college. And I thought, wow, I'm really gifted in some way, shape, or form. And I'm not really sure how that is. I shared with you last week about adult choir that lasted 15 minutes for me. And God confirmed it in my heart. That's not my area of giftedness. And so very shortly after that, the next week, I went and I, I inquired of our youth pastor who was leading the junior high group about youth ministry. And that one act changed the course of my life forever. And one of the very first people I met was a guy named Greg Holsklaw and his twin brother, Jeff. And I was, uh, and I was, uh, I was getting to, to meet these kids in a giant youth group. I was nervous to be there. And a few years back, uh, Greg Holsklaw came walking into these doors. And he's been leading our community group ministry now for a long period of time. What a gift. What a gift that God steered me to that ministry. It's just employing your gifts. Now, let me tell you what ministry is not. It's not church attendance. It's not study. It's not your personal prayer time. Those are all vastly important things. And you're commanded in Scripture to do those. That's part of the spiritual life. However, that's not really ministry. That's not serving. It all comes down to this idea of share. We've captured the idea of ministry and serving in one word. It's the idea of share. So if... If, um, with the exception of prayer, I would say that if, if you're a prayer warrior, keep praying because that really is sharing. But most of those are just the normal heartbeat of, of living. You employing your spiritual gift is getting out there and doing something and just starting. There's nothing really magical or, or special about this. Sometimes people focus so long on nuanced words and taking you know, a six-week course on their spiritual gifts inventory and all kinds of stuff. And you know what? The Bible doesn't focus on that kind of stuff. The Bible says to everyone, you ought to be loving your brother. You ought to be engaged in this. 1 Corinthians 12, 5-6, listen to this. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. The reason there's so much variety is because there is so much need. I want you to do something for me right now, okay? I want you to think of three things that you have a heart for, that you have a burden for. Maybe you've read about an atrocity this week in some way, shape, or form, and you just go, man, I have a heart for that. I wish that were not true. And, and right now, across this room, if we could see little thought bubbles, there'd be so much variety in this room. Some of you immediately went to, uh, to children who were exploited all around the world. 
And your heart just goes there immediately. I didn't have to expound on that. You just, that's exactly where you went. Others of you went right to injustices that are going on in your own neighborhood. Others of you went to spiritual apathy that's eating apart your family right now. There's all kinds of things we have a burden for. And the reason there's a variety of ministries and services is because there's so much need. And there's so much variety to the need that's out there. Now, we went with a a smaller screen this morning, not by choice, but there's no chance you could read this. Um, So let me just read it for you. Um, We almost broke out the chalkboard, which would have been fun. Kind of throwback. This is this. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. No hands but yours. No feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion is to look out to the earth. Yours are the feet by which he is to go about doing good. And yours are the hands by which he is to bless us now. If the church is a body, then when you serve, that means that in that moment, and at that place, and to that person, you're being Christ to them. You're bringing Jesus Christ to that person. And that's why it's so powerful to know that this is a tiny part of what it means to be a church, is to sit in pews, so to speak, on a Sunday morning. That when we leave here, that we then scatter into all these different places that God has a heart for, and that grace needs to trickle down into. And if it was left to the apostles, and prophets, and shepherds, and teachers, teachers, we would have just a a miserable time with that. But they're given to equip the team to go out and play the game, to go out and be involved and be engaged in things. I have two verses that I'm going to put on the screen. Uh, they're also in your notes, so you don't have to write them down. But 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now contrast that with 2 Thessalonians 3.11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, Not busy at work, but busy bodies. You see the difference? Here's the action point you can write down. My question for you is this. What will I do this week to begin using my gifts? Or maybe phrased a different way is, what will I do this week to restart using gifts that I've been sitting on? If you're actively engaged in service, here would be my challenge for you. Check in with the one who gifted you and say, God, is this still where you want me pouring in? Is this still where you want me using this gift? Because if you have more, I want it. If you want me to change focus, I want that. And that's a really healthy exercise for those who are are doing that. That prevents burnout. Because then, if in the coming year you get really sick and tired of serving kids in ministry or doing cord wind up here at church or carrying on some some after-school program that you're doing through your local school... Then you can realize, wow, this really isn't about me. I checked in two months ago. I know God has me here for a purpose. So I'm just going to persevere and do this. But if year after year after year after year after year, you keep doing the same thing, and one day you just go, I've had enough, I'm done. And then it takes you ten years to recover and ever volunteer to do anything in the church again. What a miserable thing for churches, and what a miserable thing for you as an individual to allow it to kind of get to that place. There's equipping... There's people serving, and then there's the building up of the church. It's how it happens. Growing up into Christ-likeness as a church. In Ephesians 4, we already covered this, or this is in a couple of verses. Look down in verse 16. 
Christ-likeness is what we're talking about. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There should be a growing sense of Christ's presence and Christ's character in your church. So if you're visiting from another church today, that's what you ought to see. A healthy, growing church ought to be that. And here at Neighborhood Bible Church, we ought to get a sense in six months from now to say there's a growing sense of character of Christ that's that's beginning to permeate this place that just wasn't there six months ago. There ought, to be, there ought to be a sense of Christ's presence in everything that we do, whether we're out having a barbecue or a camping trip, or whether we're sitting in here having some formal teaching times, or meeting in someone's home and having a, a midweek community group. There ought to be a sense of the presence of Christ. Now, without, quit, uh, without equipping or without people doing ministry, the church is not built up. That's, just, that's the simple truth. So if you have leadership that is not equipping, maybe they're clinging to all the jobs themselves because they trust their own great ability best. Or maybe you have people who are faithfully teaching and faithfully encouraging and trying to equip, but a congregation that's not following. And they're just rebelliously folding their arms and saying, we're not going with you. We're not going to serve. Then what you have... Uh, is one of two things. At, at, at best, you have an immature and ineffective church. There are immature and ineffective churches all across America and all across the world. But at worst, you have a sick and destructive church. Because someone enters in and says, I'm finally going to cross the threshold of a Christian church. I just slammed my truck into a snowbank. I'm desperate. I need something. They walk in, and their picture of Christ is so demented because of what they see within the body of Christ. That they say, oh, I get it. That's what church is like. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep looking. Thank you very much. Do you see how destructive that is now? So there's really a lot on us uh, to, be, to be doing this. A quick aside. A philosophical direction that NBC has chosen to take is to say this. Our midweek community groups, um, if, you're, if you're in a midweek community group, you'll know. It's not a dream community group, is it? It's not perfect. It's not everything you ever want it to be. If all of your equipping comes from that, you're going to be um, hungry, bottom line. However, we have said, man, we long for the public proclamation of the church where we're all gathered together as God's people and in smaller midweek groups where we can get together and different kinds of gifts can emerge. Different kinds of gifts can be expressed. I want you to do this as your homework. You can do it right now. If you get sick of listening to me, you can just do it right now, or you can do it later. But here's, here, here it is. Ready? I want you to make a list of all the things that can take place in a small group of people that can't possibly take place in a large gathering. Now, there's a lot of them. But just think about that. Things that can only take place if we break into smaller groups. We're not a massive church. We're about 100 people. That's fairly average, really, if you look worldwide. That's actually on the larger end of a church. But this larger group gathering, there are just certain things that you read in Scripture, you go, that can't possibly take place on a Sunday. Especially the way American church does it, right? We're all facing each other's back of, back of each other's head. So there are whole bunches of things that can't possibly take place. I'll get you started. One is opportunities to minister are unavoidable if you're sitting in a small group of six people. It's possible. If you wanted to walk in here and say, I'd love to serve. I'd love to be the answer to someone's prayer. I'd love to help people. I've got a truck. I want to help people move. I've got some extra money. I want to help bless them in some financial ways. I just don't know what the needs are. 
Now, it's possible, right, for six months to come to church here and maybe be able to trick yourself into saying that. You get together midweek in a Bible study and there's a prayer request time, that's unavoidable. You are no longer off the hook for saying, I want to serve God. I want to be a servant so bad. I just can't find any needs. Join a community group. You're with needy people. That's how it goes. And as you are in a community group for a season of time, there are seasons where you're helped and seasons where, where uh, you are doing the helping. That's just one of the things to get you going. Let's move on. Verses 13 and 14. Look at it with me. It says this. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. What does a grown-up body look like? That's what we're asking. How do we know if we've arrived? How do we know what the target is? Where are we going? Hebrews 5.12, the author writes this. For though by this time, he's kind of contrasting the mature and the childlike, okay? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the way of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment, catch this. Those who have their powers of discernment. How do I grow my powers of discernment? Here it is. Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How do you mature? You use whatever you're employing. We know this cognitively in school. If you learn something in school, memorize it for a test, ace the test, and don't use it for two years, what happens to that knowledge? Out it goes. The same is true of physical. Any of you who have ever tried to play golf know this. There's a certain repetition that if you play... I know, I never will play enough golf to really be good. I mean, that's the, that's the absolute truth of it. There's too much time in between. I don't use it enough to really, to really get that feel for it. This is true in the moral sense. This is true in the social sense. You take any one of us and you remove us from society for six months for whatever reason... We'll be a little bit rough-edged when we come out. The most personable person you know, because they're not constantly using gifts of how to even relate to other people. Isn't that true then spiritually? Of course it is. It's true spiritually. So he gives kind of two qualifications for the mature. One is unity of the faith. This is majoring on the majors, not getting sidetracked. There's one faith we just read a couple weeks ago. Let me give you some examples of what's happening all around our city all the time. There's some exciting things going on. One is this. We have this garden effort that's going on behind us in our back lot. Uh, Clink, where are you at? How many different groups have helped serve uh, in the garden ministry outside of people from NBC? Four organized groups. Some are churches. Um, uh, some are, are uh, a couple of high schools have helped out. Um, here's another thing. Uh, there's a group of us from the team here who are meeting with another church that is looking to be less internally focused and more outwardly focused. And there's some things happening here that they say, man, we like what that's, what that's what's going on there. Can you meet with us? There's a partnership that's going to form with that. 
uh, there was a benevolence need that went on. And there was a partnership amongst the churches in San Jose. And in all of this, I share this with you to know this. We are not an island. We are not the ones getting it right. And everyone else is just in the wrong. We're partnering with gospel-centered churches. And we're saying, man, how can we link arms? How can we not care who gets the credit as long as Jesus is getting the credit? And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the family of God. And it's happening. A lot of times we hear the negative but not the positive. In a book called Why We Love the Church, I love this quote. There is a danger that we find our unity in doing good missional deeds for our community and not in the good news of the gospel. So while there's a great thing that we partner with other churches, we want to make it distinctly Christ-centered. Not just out doing good works. Not just linking arms with everyone who has a desire to help other people. The idea is that there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. So as we engage with other churches in good works of service, we're keeping in mind that our, our, our identity is first and foremost in whose we are and in who we are, not in what we do. Does that make sense? So that as we start to engage in some things, there are whole organizations that might be engaged in that same direction, but we can't partner with them because of some of the end results of where they want to take that. And we say as a, as a distinctly Christian bent on this issue, we don't believe the, the, the problem really is going to be fixed by this program or more money being thrown at this. This is absolutely a spiritual issue, and that's the direction that we will take it. Um, Let's move on. Unity is the first one. The second one in terms of uh, maturity is knowledge of the Son of God. The word knowledge here is talking about a full experiential knowledge. It's not just knowing about, but it's knowing mentally and relationally. I had a friend in high school. I was on a, a, a youth trip of some sort. And we had a, the size youth group that you took multiple buses to go to places. So you found the right bus with your friends and this and that. And we're on this bus, and it's a long trip. And I see a buddy of mine, and he's in the back of the bus. And there's about six girls all turned back, listening, hang on his every word of what he's talking about. And, um, and I'm like, I've got to go find out what he's talking about, because that looks like a good deal. Like, I don't know what he's doing, but he's doing something right back there. So as I get closer, my, buddy, my buddy's kind of getting a weird look on his face as he's looking at me. And I realize what he's talking about is surfing. Now, my friend doesn't surf. <laughs> he likes surfing. He kind of wears surfing clothes. He looks like he should surf. And later on in life, he picked up surfing. But at this point in high school, he had never been surfing before. I know this. And I'm hearing him field questions from these girls about surfing. And one said, well, well how, do you, how do you paddle out when it's really big waves? And my buddy says, now, now he was really nervous now because I'm sitting there, I'm dying to know the answer to this. As one who has surfed much of my life. He said, well, as you're paddling out, what you want to do is you want to grab the kelp that's floating on the surface. And you actually grab that and you actually pull yourself along. Now, this is a bad answer if you've never seen the ocean, right? Because what's the point? If there's no kelp, you're just stuck, right? And I'm, I'm just looking at it, and he just got this smirk on his face. And I thought, yeah, you're busted, buddy, because <laughs> that is not how you paddle out in big surf. He was displaying knowledge without experience. That's all he was doing. And you know what's easy to do? It's easy to get up and talk 
about God. It's easy to share with someone about your, your commitment to the Lord. It's easy to talk about things that you're passionate about and talk a great talk without any experiential knowledge whatsoever. It's learned knowledge, which his wasn't even learned knowledge. It was actually inaccurate, but it's not there. 1 Corinthians 14.20, just, just listen. It says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In verse 14, he says that we're no, we're no longer to be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Those of you who have kids and have gone to the beach, you know this. You don't turn your back on your kids at the beach, do you? One of the things I always tell people, whenever I take them surfing and teach them or anything, I say, look, have incredible respect for the ocean because it looks really calm and mild-mannered. In a heartbeat, you'll be 300 yards away from shore wondering what on earth happened. And it's pretty scary. You'll be sitting there and having a good time, and all of a sudden it just takes one wave to come smash you, and next thing you know, you're gone. Kids at the beach, like us, can get snuffed out in a moment. It seems like a fun play thing, and all of a sudden a false gospel comes and just wipes a, wipes a person out. A false hope is proclaimed, and it sounds pretty good, and they start to go after it, and it's kind of like a rogue wave that just takes them away, and you never hear from them or see them again. And think about this. If you think, most of us in this room think, yeah, but that's for people who aren't good thinkers. I'm a good thinker. That'll never happen to me. Someone's getting sucked out to sea, right? It happens all the time. They thought, I can handle this. They thought, I'm good. I'm sure-footed. It won't happen to me. I thought about this this morning. If I can deceive myself at times, isn't it possible that someone else with some cunning words could come and deceive me? Of course it is. So what's the defense for it? The defense for it is to grow up. Grow up in your thinking. Some of us, and I was guilty of this for years because I grew up in the church, and familiarity breeds a kind of apathy. We bebop in the church. We may jot down a few notes. We laugh at a few little stories, whatever. But we don't come in here and think of this as our lifeline until what? Until a bomb goes off in our marriage. Until we lose our job. Until something massive is going on. And there's times in church where I can tell the people who are hurting and suffering and going, I need every word from the word proclaimed. And it's a continuation of what's been going on all week. Lord, where are you? I'm crying out to you. I need you. Give me today the daily bread that you have for me. Some of you need to grow up in your thinking by simply taking really good notes. By journaling through the week. Writing out your prayers. Writing out your questions. Going and pursuing your questions. Diving into the word. Getting with a mentor. Having conversations. These are ways that your knowledge is grown. Parents, I want to say a word to you for a moment. It used to be, if we were here a hundred years ago, dads, you probably would have been out working at least six days a week. Sun up to sundown, you'd be exhausted. And you would long for the Sabbath day. You would long for church day, where for one day in the community, we got to hang up the overalls a little bit, or at least dust them off, I suppose. Come and gather at church, hear a word from the Lord. And I think men from a hundred years ago were probably had this more instilled in them than they do now. But you were expected as a family leader to lead your family well on the Sabbath day. That at least one day a week, you were talking about the things of God. You were remembering the things of God. You used your Sabbath day well. You used Sunday really, really well. 
Because you knew Monday through Saturday there was going to be a lot of work to do. And so you took that time and you carved out time and you really used the Sabbath well. Family leaders, at the very least, at a starting point, carve out Sundays. Make them a different day. Set them apart as to the Lord. And say, we're going we're gonna to talk about the things. We're not just going to go do a, an hour and a half at church and then kind of you know, go, go on from there and make it like the rest of the weekend. A little food for thought. There's good growth and bad growth in the knowledge area. 1 Corinthians 8.1 While knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answer really doesn't know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. You ought to grow up in your knowledge. All of us should. I don't care if you're the smartest person in here and an amazing theologian. You need to keep growing. But there's a danger in that, in that, you know, the, the King James might read it this way, knowledge puffeth up. You know, it's like it basically makes you think you're smarter and smarter and better and better, and it can really grow love into a cold place. This passage reminds us that love is what builds us up. All right, so not only mentally, but relationally. We're to have knowledge of the Son of God in our mind, but also relationally. Knowing God's love is more than a feeling, it's more than study, it's a real relationship. In the same way that you can know about marriage, know all the stats about your husband or wife or your fiancé, but it's different than knowing the person, being in relationship with them. Ephesians 3.17, it was Paul's prayer a chapter ago, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's a mental capacity of growing. There's a relational aspect of growing in Christ. The result is maturity. How many are to, are to mature? All of us are to mature. 1 John 2.6 says this, Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Not the paid pastors. Not the missionaries who leave it all to go to the mission field and are representatives for the rest of us. The goal of a Christian is not just heaven when I die, but also Christ-likeness and ministry or usefulness now. Now, let me, think, let me get you to think about this for a second. If you have a physical issue right now, and you've been in the hospital recently, don't answer out loud, but just think about it. What prompted you to go to the hospital? Something wasn't functioning, right? Something was broken. Now, you could have just continued on and said, well, it's broken. I mean, I've got a lot of other parts that are working great. I mean, no need to get hyper about it. You know, I've got two legs. No, you said, man, that's broken, and that hurts, and that's hampering everything I'm about. I'm going to go get that fixed. I need to get this changed right now. Spiritually, when things are broken, a lot of times we don't seek help. We don't submit to a doctor, so to speak, who's giving us advice saying, you better change your diet, or a whole world of hurt is coming to you in 10 years. Somehow spiritually, we think that it will change without anything changing in our own lives, which is as foolish as breaking your ankle and not ever getting the bone set, not ever getting it rehabilitated, and thinking it's just going to kind of get better on its own. Spiritually, like physically, we need to go seek help. We need to get medicine. We might need to change our diet. So here's my question for you. How are you childlike? Are you childlike in your unity? Are you childlike in your knowledge? Through lack of use, have either one of those just grown a little bit um, 
shriveled up, not used? How about in your service? Are you childlike in your courage? Are you childlike in your generosity? My question to you is this. Aside from prayer, which should be a given, what will you do about it? What will change? How will you cooperate with God to grow up in that area? All right. Third and finally is this. What are the results of healthy growth? How do I know I'm growing? Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Verse 15 says this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint by which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. We're to grow up in every way, and then he gives us this very specific one about our speech. So we'll kind of camp out there. Let me give you a sense of what growing up in every way has gone on this very week. Okay? One of the things I get to do is be into conversations maybe in a greater degree because of uh, people coming and sharing things. I've asked people, by the way, if I could share these, and I'm going to keep it fairly general. But this week, there are some marriages that are doing an absolute 180, and both would acknowledge it's a work of the Spirit. It's a miracle of God. This week, the hearts of fathers have been turned back to children. This week, a college student has hungered for godly leadership in the form of a mentor. You know what these are? These are movements and works of the Spirit in cooperation with obedient children. If you have a movement of the Spirit in a disobedient child, there's a problem. If you have an over, overwhelmingly trying hard child that's not in line with what the, God, with, 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 with what the Father's doing, there's a problem there. As I just read these things in how we as a church family are growing up in every way, I hope what you heard there was this. There are ministry opportunities in that last little list of people who are growing up. When a college student longs for a mentor, you know what that means? Someone who's not in ministry as a mentor right now needs to be answering that call and engaging with this college girl and say, man, I'd love to meet with you. I don't feel like a mentor. I don't feel like I really have much to offer. But I'm further down the, life, uh, down, down the road in you, and I love Jesus, and I'm following him, and I'd love to meet with you and just, just find some things out. A couple that has recently done a 180, you know what they need? They need other couples around them that are stronger. Just come and say, man, we want to pray with you and, and celebrate with you. This is great news. This is a work of the Spirit. I mean, you guys have been at this a long time. And all of a sudden, there's something going on here. It's a work of the Spirit. Let's seize this. And let me help you. And, and let, let me kind of alleviate the kids for a night so you can really take some time as a couple this week and, and solidify some things. Do you hear ministry in this? As growth happens, more ministry comes about. If someone accepts Christ today and they're a brand new believer in Christ, there's a world of ministry that opens up for that person. And it can't all fall to the pastor or your small group leader. Lots of ministry to be done. All right. Let's focus on speech for a moment. The idea to speak the truth in love ought to be not new to you if you're a Christian for any length of time. However, there's huge misunderstanding to this. This is both an evidence of healthy bodies, but it's also a command for us. That we are to speak the truth in love to one another. The truth hurts, but it hurts even more when it's not spoken in love. Right? We know this. We've experienced this. The natural person, the natural man, the natural wind wants to say this. Forget you. Another one common right now is, I'm so over it. Right? How about this one? A little more subtle. Never mind. The natural person either does those kinds of avoidance things, or they can sometimes jump down the throat of someone, and it's not done in love. 
The supernatural empowering of Jesus, which he embodied and modeled for us, is to speak truthfully and full of love. Let me show you some misunderstanding really quick. Junior high boys, you're going to love this part. Here's what it's not. Here's what speaking the truth in love is not. See if you can find yourself in, in, one, of these, uh, in one of these images, okay? It's not being a hillbilly, okay? Here's what a hillbilly is. It's a license to shoot your mouth off like every day is the first day of hunting season, okay? This is the person who just, at every moment, they just, they just fire off what they're, what they're thinking. And if their mouth were a gun, it's locked and loaded and they're shooting pretty wildly. It's also not being uh, James Bond. James Bond is putting a silencer on the gun, okay? This isn't truthful or loving to just put a silencer on and, and not really talk at all. It's not truthful because you're not speaking the, the words uh, well, and it's very unloving to give the silent treatment. That's actually a torture technique, is isolation and silence. So it's definitely not the way to go. Uh, some people are, are the uh, Terminator. Terminator uses a shotgun. Here's the shotgun approach, okay? Uh, you have an issue with someone in your family. You're at a family gathering. You speak the issue out. Now, the person's in the room, so technically you spoke it to them, right? But you just shot like 20 people at the same time. And you're like, well, I, I spoke the truth in love to that person. Technically, they were in the crowd. As a preacher, that'd be a really lousy way to go. One of you has an issue with me, and I have an issue with you, and so I start to preach about it right here and now. That's not very loving. You would say, gosh, that's not very loving. I don't like that. Here's another one, sniper. Okay, you can hardly even see the gun, but it's there. The sniper is the person who's not even in the vicinity, but they're firing things off. This is the anonymous email, the anonymous letter. Not even have the courage to put your name on it, but just say, uh, you know, it's, it's the neighbor who comes and, and writes to you about something, but they don't identify who they even are. They get you in your sights, blam, and they just shoot. That's cowardly. Finally, it's the drive-by. Here's the drive-by. The drive-by is that uh, you, just, you just shoot others who aren't part of the solution. You have the courage to go and talk to people who can't help change and aren't involved in it. And the Bible gives it a really simple name. It's called gossip. But when you shoot people who aren't involved, what you're doing is you're shooting innocent bystanders. You're just blasting them with bullets and you're tearing them down. And, you, and it's, it's really just a mess all the way around. Now, Satan modeled this, by the way, in the garden, defaming God's name. Did God really say... And that's just that same kind of divisive sort of thing that can, that can really eat at a church. Now, moral of the story is stop shooting your mouth off, right? I mean, that's pretty simple. I don't want to make light of guns, by the way. I read an article this morning about hundreds of protesters in Libya that were, that were shot and killed due to, due to protests right now. Now, we look at that and think it's a really serious thing. We get all really uppity. If anyone ever had a gun without the safety on and was pointing it kind of crazily around, what if that's our mouth? We make real light of what we do with our tongue, but we would be cautioned and careful with a loaded gun, wouldn't we? The Bible takes a pretty serious look at it, too. Junior high boys, come back to me. Uh, we're done with the guns. Uh, James, listen, listen, to, listen to just how important... Um, Listen to just how important the, the tongue is, okay? This is James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. 
Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Is the tongue important? Is it important, families, to learn how to speak to one another in a home? When you're in a car and there's banter going in the back seat, as my kids have gotten older and older, I've given them more and more time to self-correct it. And it's a huge joy as a parent when they recognize, wow, this is going in a bad direction. We need to change this. But then it reaches a point where I say, guys, no. We have a little phrase in our family that... If dad's calling out yellow light, you know what that means? It means you better slow down and yield. You're about ready to go right through an intersection. And if they don't stop the conversation, I will. Because words are important. Now, lest you think that the tongue is all evil, read the rest of James. There's some great things we get to do with our tongue. Um, Here's one of them. Speak the truth in love. Let me just close with this. Here's some ways to use your tongue in a good way. Okay? These are, these are things worth jotting down. Conflict will occur when you're dating, when you're in marriage, whatever. The first way to use it is not to use it. Okay? Here's one, here's one of the good ways to do it. Many things are not worth speaking about. 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. Wives, aren't you glad your husbands don't talk to you about everything that's wrong? Husbands, I know you're glad that they don't call out everything wrong. You'd be exhausted. Right? you be at each other's throats all the time. Love covers a multitude of sins. Here's a great test, by the way, on whether to overlook or whether to speak in, in, uh, in love. If you are dreaming about this issue that's there, that means you're really thinking about it a lot. If you are discussing it with others or feeling tempted to want to talk about it with someone, or if you have it flash into your mind the second that that person's name is mentioned, then that's probably an issue that you need, to, you need to not overlook, but you need to go speak the truth in love with them. If you're able to bypass those things and overlook a matter, you know what? Love is just won over, and that's a beautiful thing. And praise God, people all around you are doing that for you. I promise you that. So first way to use your tongue well is not to use it. If you're going to go speak truthfully and love to one another, here are just a couple of pointers. One is to do it prayerfully. Examine your own self. Examine your own motives. Do you have a log in your own eye in this area? You want to go help? I mean, this is Jesus talking, right? Let me help you get that speck out of your eye. Hang on a sec. And you have a giant log sticking out of your eye. That's a good thing to evaluate before you go and call someone else out on something. How about this? Is revenge or soothing an area of personal hurt for yourself at all a motive in why you're going and talking to this person? Another thing to check. Are you casting spotlight here on them, speaking the truth in love about their life so that the spotlight is not on an area of concern for your own life? That's a common thing people do. They want to constantly talk about other things and correcting everyone else. And the second the spotlight ever comes on their own life, it's it's all shut down. Finally, is is this for me or for them? Here's the second way or third way is to be specific. If you care enough to confront, don't be vague and hope that they kind of get it. 
Don't dance around it and say, well, I was, I was, I was just being loving. Most of us in this room fall on one side of the, of the teeter-totter. We're either too truthful, which sounds weird, but meaning truthful without much love. Yeah, that was probably accurate, but you, you missed Ephesians 4.15 in a big way. Others of you, though, say, well, I'm, I just, I'm, I'm too loving to tell them the truth. And it's not, it's not really loving at all, is it? That's the worst thing you do to your kid is to never correct them. That's very unloving to do. So some of you fall on the side of too much love, so to speak, or too much truth. Or the better way to say it is not enough truth or not enough love. So kind of check yourself on that. Um, Here's another one. It's to think about the time and place uh, that you're going to do this. Don't be a coward and set up a place where you know you only have five minutes to do an hour-long discussion. Well, there I said my piece. Whoa, got to go. That's cowardly, and that's not for their benefit. That's kind of a, it's almost a modified sniper, you know, or a drive-by. But, but it's definitely not speaking the truth in love. So, so think about that. Another one is to choose your words carefully. We're going to talk more about the tongue later on in chapter 4. But Ephesians 4.29 talks about the idea of, are these words building this person up, or are they tearing them down? Are these, are these words going to be a gift to them in 10 years? It's hard, to, it's hard to give words right now, because you might get feedback that's pretty negative, and all of us like to be liked. But in 10 years, will they look back and thank you for this conversation? I've gone back and thanked people 10 years later and said, thank you so much for loving me enough to punch me in the face with those really hard words. I know you did it in love. I'm a different person because you you came along and said those things to me. Finally, is to do it courageously and yet also do it humbly. Courage to speak to others uh, about it that aren't involved, I already mentioned, is gossip. But to the one who needs it, it's godly. And you know what? There's probably a lot of other people who notice it and aren't lovingly, courageously confronting them on it. Finally, humbly, because we all stumble and we don't have all knowledge. So here's my closing question for you. Who do you need to urgently, courageously love this week by speaking the truth to them? Who is it that you need to urgently, courageously love by speaking the truth in love? Schedule time to speak to them. It could be the written word. Some of you are great with written words and you say, hey, I want to write you this letter because I think I'd get myself all tongue-tied, but I'm dying to meet with you and I'd love to hear back from you and all that. But here it is. Some of you need to write that letter today. By the way, final word on this, don't text, twit, or post. Terrible. Terrible idea. Oh, I didn't really know it was public knowledge. Yes, you did. It's on the internet. Come on. Someone got bit by that this week in the news. Don't do it. Don't do it. Band, come on up. I want to put a closing scripture on the screen. We're going to celebrate communion together as a family. Growing up, which is sanctification, is a work of the Spirit. But you're either in cooperation with the Spirit or you're competing with the Spirit. The Spirit of God is trying to lovingly guide you into Christ's likeness. And if you're in competition with that, you're pulling in an opposite direction. Colossians 1, 28 through 29, I love it because it shows this tension that's there between our part and the part of the Spirit, and it also serves as a prayer. Look at it with me. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Did you catch that? Paul talking. I toil and I struggle with all of His energy, that He powerfully works in me. There's the tension. 
Paul was in cooperation with what the one father was doing in his family. And that is to grow up his people. Let's pray. God, thank you for the loving discipline that many of us in this room have experienced. Whether it be from a coach or a pastor or a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a friend. God, at the time, it always, always is hurtful and painful. We almost always wish that we would be somewhere else than under the hand of discipline. And yet you've told us that that's what shows we're legitimate children is when you discipline those that you love. God, for those in this room who are resisting your discipline this morning, would you break their heart for you? God, for those in this room who've been using their tongue, not in a godly way that's according to Scripture, but in a way that is fleshly and ultimately completely unprofitable. I pray for repentance. And I I pray, God, for a heart of restitution that would go and make things right. Some within homes, some within relationships, some, Lord, just within our family, our church family. Maybe someone, God, who's hundreds of miles away across the other side of the country. You know. Pray that you would move in that person's heart. God, as we now celebrate one who was mocked, reviled, gossiped about, defamed, and endured it all for our sake, would you give us a fresh picture, God, of what it costs you to welcome us into your family? Would you remind us, God, give us a clear picture of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.